Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, renowned British chef Tom Kerridge joins us in the studio to talk about his new book, Pub Kitchen. And I think in most businesses that are relatable to food and drink in particular, the ones that are successful aren't necessarily the ones that make the most profit margin. The ones with longevity in life are the ones that operate with a sense of generosity. Also on the programme, we journey to the Mediterranean island of Salina, where we drop into CARES, a chef's summit promoting more ethical food practices. It's not just about taking care. It's taking care about uh, products, it's taking care about nature, it's taking care about our staff, about our team. So it's it's much more than just, than just an event or just a three days coming together. Plus, we'll hear from our Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda-Smith, to find out about the fortunes of falafel in Istanbul. All that here on The Menu on Monocle Radio. Tom Kerridge is one of Britain's most well-known and loved chefs. His comforting recipe books have long been a staple in households up and down the country and his cooking often focuses on time-honoured pub classics. After training in high-end kitchens in his early 20s, Kerridge opened his first gastropub, The Hand and Flowers, in Marlow 18 years ago. The eatery, which focuses on fresh ingredients, innovative dishes and a cosy atmosphere, proved immediately popular and the pub has since earned itself two shining Michelin stars. He then went on to open a roster of venues across London and the British countryside. In his latest cookbook, Pub Kitchen, Kerridge takes the most beloved pub menu items and reinvents them for home cooking. From classic bangers and mash to perfectly pink rack of lamb, it's a heartfelt homage to this British institution and the melting pot influences that have shaped it. I sat down with Tom in our London studio to find out more. Tom, thank you so much for coming to us, to the studio today, to talk about your newest book. Very exciting because there is a the word ultimate in the title. So, <laughs> and, and pub. And pub. <laughs> the two things together um, really got my mouth watering. It is called Pub Kitchen, the ultimate modern British food Bible. And I think in that title, there's a lot to unpack, particularly because you have a previous book that's called Proper Pub Food. Yeah. Um, it's been a decade since then. Yes. And I guess... Pubs have changed so much. This British institution has changed so much in the last decade. And we've seen the great big revolution that was the arrival of the gastropub. Yeah. Um, but where is pub food now? Changed isn't, I don't think it's the right word. I think it's grown and developed and organically kind of morphed into something that is incredibly beautiful. Ten years ago, the first pub book proper pub food was like a really kind of heartfelt it was my first book and it was this kind of connection to british food british cooking at that point and there was lots of i suppose comforting homely familiar dishes that felt very very wrapped up in british seasonality and ingredients and over the last 10 years you're right you say there that it's kind of that pub scene is, is blossomed is probably the best way of describing it and what we've done and the way that it's grown is now you know we used to have select pubs that you would know in your area that would do nice food 
now it's almost pretty much every pub you go to, you can expect a good burger, a, you know, a very nicely made salad, something that on toast or, you know, a simple pie or just, but, but you expect it to be done pretty well. You know, things homemade, things aren't coming necessarily now straight from a freezer and dropped in a fryer. It's like, actually, there's a bit of heart and soul and passion that comes into it. But I think most importantly, the way that recipes and dishes have developed and grown is that we're very much like a magpie style nation in terms of food. We're culturally diverse, eclectically rich in backgrounds and food and continent kind of embracing styles. We, we, we are a nation of people that are experimental and inquisitive when it comes to dishes and flavours. And there's no other style restaurant in the world that will wrap themselves up in dishes and make it feel like it's completely normal to have a Korean-style barbecue mackerel followed by a Sri Lankan prawn curry and then a steamed suet pudding. You know, and we would sit there and eat those three dishes, and you might even have that on a Sunday lunchtime in a pub. And it's completely normal, but it's because it's cooked beautifully. We have chefs with skill levels that are operating in pubs now that are just, they're beyond basic. They're actually doing very, very good cookery. And they're learning dishes and techniques and skill sets that are wrapped around global cuisine. And it sits in a pub so, so nicely. So 10 years has grown from these British dishes that have been about bone marrow on toast, for example, and, you know, roasted beetroots and celebrating seasonality to now. It's not just seasonality we we specialise in in British pubs. It's not just produce that we specialise in. It's actually global cuisine. And it's a really nice way of putting it all together. But for a global audience like ours, let's take a step back and look at why the pub is such a both comforting and alluring institution to have and to be able to rely on when I look at the ways that your recipes have been described. Flavour-packed, warm-hearted, joyful for everyone. There is a sense of generosity which evokes this idea, this mental image that people have of the pub, whether it's reclining in the armchair, whether it's just finding a place that always feels welcoming to people. Why does the pub hold such a an importance and charm that is so just absolutely enveloping for people. And why did you choose to go down this route in your career as well when you got into food and then eventually chose your own path? Yeah, I mean, my background, I've worked in Michelin star restaurants pretty much my whole career and my whole life. But when it came to opening my own business, which is now nearly 19 years, um, it was, I wanted to create somewhere where I'd like to be on my day off and on my day off I wanted to wear jeans and trainers I don't want to dress up I don't want to, but that doesn't mean to say I've got to eat food that's not of high quality you know so in case of opening the business it was like well why can't we do great food set on a three course a la carte meal start a main dessert that's got really good produce in it looked and cared for by chefs that can cook to a complete level just because it hasn't got white linen tablecloths and an extensive huge wine list there's no reason why the food can't be great so that was the first point of call of opening the hand and flowers and going this is what we're going to do and this is what i set myself up into but 
my relationship and I think on, in general the bigger picture of Great Britain's relationship with pubs is that they are so interwoven into the fabric of society. They're the connective tissue of so many different people's lives and places. They are social meeting places. They're hubs of society. They are spaces where people go after work for a catch-up and a pint. And what defines a pub is it has to have beer. I mean, that's first and foremost. A pub has to have beer, right? Without beer, it's not a pub, okay? So that's the one thing that it must have, beer. And you go... But from there, that beer, it also then has to have a sense of familiarity and a warm sense of hospitality. And you mentioned the word generosity there. All of the best chefs, all of the best restaurateurs, all of the best publicans, all of the best operators. And I think in most businesses that are relatable to food and drink in particular, the ones that are successful aren't necessarily the ones that make the most profit margin. The ones with longevity in life are the ones that operate with a sense of generosity. They're the ones that are about making sure that people have a wonderful time when they come to visit. Our world and our jobs, they are vocational they're not something that's built in. They are careers and they're livelihoods and they're everything. But actually, the reason why we do them in the first place is because it's it's a passion and it's a love and it's a sense of, I think, connection to other human beings that, you know, that, that makes you go, you know, this is what it's all about. This is where I want to be. This is where my heart belongs. And pubs sum that up better than anything else because they're so connected throughout society and it doesn't, you know, everybody... Everybody knows what a pub is and, you know, and they should be completely embracing from all walks of life and every member of society. It doesn't matter who you are. You walk through into the door of a pub, you should be made to feel welcome. And that's what sums up a pub. And that's why they're so important. And that's why they're so quintessentially British, that understanding of what it is. Your pub does have two Michelin stars. Two questions. One, what makes pub food Michelin star worthy but also do you still use it as a space to experiment nowadays and where do you push it forward what does a three Michelin star pub look like <laughs> I've no I've absolutely no idea what a three star pub looks like I think there's 20 plus pubs now with Michelin stars and that level of cooking now I can't I've no idea really what it takes, what the Michelin inspector is looking for. I don't know their tick box process of what they're going for. However, I do, we have won them. We've got two stars at the hand. We've got one star at the coach and we have kept them for a long time. And you go, all right, what do they look for? They look for quality led ingredients and they look for consistency. And they'll look for a warmth of service, I'm sure. I know that it's always about the food, but, you know, if somebody smiles and says hello when they come through the door, that's got to be a little tick point, hasn't it? You know, <laughs> straight away. So just doing hospitality correct, sourcing wonderful produce and treating it with love and respect. And you go, actually, that, and doing it consistently again and again and again. I think the difference between two and one stars is personality. And by that, what I mean is, I think there's lots of incredible, brilliant singular Michelin star restaurants and brilliant spaces but a lot of it do you can you instantly tell which chef has cooked that each dish I think there's a lot of um, brilliant cookery but has it does it now excel into the personality of those chefs and there's 20 25 two Michelin star spaces up and down the country and I would argue that if you put particularly in front of those chefs if you put the 25 dishes a main course of 25 dishes in front of all of those chefs without knowing who it is, I could sit there and I reckon I would get 90 to 100% right of which chef cooked which dish because there is a sense of personality and 
ownership that comes into that style and that particular cooking and i think that's probably the difference that goes from one to two but i don't really know so we operate like a two-star restaurant it's just a pub it's just the walls that are different that's all and you just go actually and with that you still have to have that warmth of connection and i think those are the points that were very i think driven from us to get to that two-star level three-star I couldn't tell you what a three-star pub looks like because there isn't one. However, I could tell you what a three-star restaurant looks like and they are exceptional. They are world-class cuisine. How do you transfer that into a pub? I wouldn't have the first clue without it then suddenly becoming slightly intimidating to people. Pubs are about embracing. And one of the biggest things that I love about our pub at the Hand of Flowers is many people come to us and they say it's the first experience of mission star dining they've ever had. And it's a two-star. And they've come to us because they know it's a pub. So they know they can go, actually, it will feel quite comfortable and they get it. And if that leads them in, on to go and eat in another two-star restaurants, one-star restaurants, and going because it's they realise that actually there's nothing to be intimidated about. It's an amazing space. And, you know, the professionalism of the staff, no matter whether it's one-star, two-star, three-star, anywhere, should be about making people feel comfortable. I think that if we try to take a look at that personality, the one that you can recognise in other people's dishes the moment you see them. And if you look at the book itself, which we have in front of us, and yeah. we can turn to, like the Bible that it is, you can clearly see your personality pretty evidently from all these dishes. Um, and I think it's interesting that, yes, there's the comforting burgers and things that maybe you've come to expect from a pub, but also very refined dishes at the same time that do carry a sense of occasion like this skate with caper butter sauce but also I have to admit I did give it a test last night yes and I decided that I would challenge myself with the bangers and mash because I thought let's go for a real classic (laughs) yeah and I guess my question for you is how many times can you change a classic yeah, I don't think I don't think you can ever change classics. Classics are there for a reason, and they're there because you know. And 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 classics are always a produce led. They're always produce led. But there's technique that changes and develops and grows, and understanding of dishes. And you never, you don't ever not have a school day. There's always something to learn. There's always something that you can see or improve just by a tiny, tiny little percent. Even today, I learned a new thing about. Well, that might be an interesting way of making mashed potatoes boiling the potatoes with the skin on that have just got one knife cut round it, gently poaching them with the skin on. Then when the skin comes away and then peel the skin off and that way they haven't absorbed any water before you're making mash. You can do it like baking it, but I thought that was quite a nice way because when you bake it, you don't get the seasoning in the water. You don't get... So today I've seen, I saw a little video on social media that I thought I might have a go at that. That might be a good way of, of improving our mash by 0.01%. And if that works, great. So you can't ever change a classic because they're there a piece of sea bass piece of line court beautiful that south coast sea bass will always be amazing because it is an animal that swims in the sea that's not changing right and how you cook it crispy skin like those the simplicity and that's the same when you look at global cuisine you look at beautiful pasta and you look at simple dishes that come from spain and amazing paella or you look at you know and there isn't anything that changes that it's ingredient led and those are the things that will never ever change you can't change a classic but you can learn new technique that enhances things tiny little bit by tiny little bit I just have one final question for you. I know it's impossible to choose a baby, uh, but if there was a dish that was coming on the pass and knew 
did get that temptation or why am I not eating it in this book which one would it be oh you're right I mean there's there are so many I'm really pleased with the dessert section in this one it's, we've done more puddings in this one than ever before they're all doable they're all dishes that you can do at home and they're all ones that you could you know pretty much expect from your, your, your local pub that cooks round the corner you know these are it but I think that one of the nicest dishes for me is there's a lamb rump dish a rump of lamb with madras gravy and it's kind of that for me I love a rump of lamb it's not the best end or the rack of, of lamb it's not the saddle it's actually full flavored a beautiful texture it, it's got a phenomenal flavor but then what it does and it and it's more cost effective so it goes so it could sit in a pub or a, a, a high street pub environment much better but then also the madras gravy that comes with it all of a sudden that is a nod to go in here we go. Actually, this is something that's a bit more crossover. It's not lamb with mint sauce or it's not lamb with just roasted lamb sauce. It's actually lamb with a gravy that's a nod to Indian-style cookery and the way that it adapts into into our world and integrates into pub food where we're food-embraced. Tom Carriage, thank you so, so much. That was Tom Carriage. His new book, Pub Kitchen, the ultimate modern British food Bible, is out now. Next up on the menu, we journey to the Mediterranean island of Salina for a meeting of like-minded chefs looking to promote sustainable food practices in the kitchen. The event, called Cares, is the brainchild of three-star Michelin chef Norbert Niederkoffler of South Tyrol. This ongoing series brings together promising culinary talents from across the globe who gather to cook with the bountiful ingredients of this Sicilian island, from ripe tomatoes to fresh seafood, and discuss ways for a more ethical approach to cooking. Our Milan correspondent Ivan Carvalho went along and brought back this report. Chef Norbert Niedekoffler, a native of Italy's far north Alto Adige province, has forged a remarkable career. He earned three Michelin stars at his St. Ubertus restaurant in the Dolomite Mountains with his Cook the Mountain philosophy, developing dishes using ingredients from the surrounding valleys, an approach which won him a coveted Michelin Green Star for sustainability. In 2015, we started with the first CARES event, and the CARES, the ethical chef days, because it's not just about taking care. It's taking care about uh, products. It's taking care about nature. It's taking care about our staff, about our team. So it's it's much more than just an, just an event or just a, a three days coming together. But it's really to to share problems, to try to resolve problems, to find solutions. And so that's why we we realized that it's very important to open up uh, cares, the ethical chef days, also to other other sectors, you know, like to art, to uh, fashion, to cars, to, you know, everything what, uh, what involves, especially was when you have tourism, because when you have tourists, they're coming in with the car, they're coming in with the planes, they're coming in with the train, so we have to think about everything, not just one part. So we started uh, doing the event uh, once a year, and uh, this year we decided to do CARES on tour. So the first event was in Venice, Venice is a unique city in the world and uh, everybody loves to go there but with a lot of problems, with a lot of great things, with a lot of beautiful things and we really wanted to show what potential you have in Venice and how people deal also with the problems, also with the over-tourism and uh, what's going on there and now we're in Salina Salina is uh, on the other side 
of Alto Adige, so we are from the far north, we are coming to the far south, and it's a little bit the same, the same situation here. Nature is beautiful, it's very tough, it's very unique, so people have to, to live with the nature, because, I mean, we have beautiful day today, but uh, if there's a storm out there, three or four days, you're not leaving the island, because the only way is, is by the boat. There's a lot of things, and it's always very interesting to see how people and how nature adapt on the on the on the conditions uh, which which you find, which you have, and so I think this is a very big lesson, very important lesson, especially for us for the future. Today, Niederkaufler is eager to educate colleagues with his event Cares, a gathering where he helps chefs think holistically to make better choices for the environment and their restaurants. For the latest edition of Cares. He invited talented chefs from Italy and abroad to the island of Salina, off Sicily, to investigate ways to overcome local challenges in order to serve gourmet dishes. So the ethical part here is that you're, you're asking people not just to think about food and the ingredients and being sustainable and sourcing local, but you, you want this to be more holistic and have people look at the larger picture. Well, you have to, have to look at the larger picture. Cook the mountain is, for me, still the base. And from Cook the Mountain, we started to work on, on CARES, the ethical chef days. Why this? Because it's, uh, we have to talk about nature. We have to talk about nature around you. So it's very respectful when you're in Salina, you're talking about the nature from Salina. You're talking about the traditions from Salina, and you're talking about the products from Salina. So this is very important. Over three days, Niederkoffler and his chefs studied local problems such as the lack of fresh drinking water on Salina and the challenges for agriculture. Meals were prepared by a cadre of chefs, including former pupils of his, such as Italian pastry chef Tamara Rigo. For her dessert, Rigo, who today works in Los Angeles at Gucci Osteria, she looked to the island's natural resources to come up with a creative suite. Tamara Rigo. So before I came to Salina, I have never been. In my imagination, I saw the colors, the sea, the island, the boats, the culture, the fishermen. You know, I was imagining and thinking about all those things happening on an island as I'm from the mountains, which is a complete different character. My dessert that I brought is called Sapore di Mare, like the famous Italian song, which brings you to the beach in a second. And it's all but sweet. So it's the milk ice cream infused with roasted almonds. There's a lemon and seaweed jam we make with the, using the whole lemon. We just cut basically the peel off. We leave the white part, which we blanch in water, you know, two, three times starting from cold water. So actually that, that bitterness from the lemon, because so, so many people don't use the skin because it's bitter. But actually you can remove that bitterness by soaking it in water, you know, blanching it a few times. And actually the texture of the lemon peel with the white is incredible. We candied that part on the side, and then with the pulp and the juice, we, we cook the jam. Another attendee at CARES was Tala Bashmi, a promising chef from Bahrain's award-winning Fusions by Tala restaurant. She relied on the island's abundant seafood as her starting point. Chef Tala Bashmi. So when they told me about the event CARES, I thought it was really interesting because this is how I love to work in terms of sustainability. So the dish that I'm doing today is actually inspired by Bahrain and where we are right now, Salina. So it's a seafood-based tartare. 
Um, I'm using a local fish, amberjack. Uh, using a local lemons that we just picked from outside the tree, actually. We use the zest to add some freshness. I'm pairing it with a black lime broth. Uh, so I brought the black limes from Bahrain. They're uh, sun-dried, so they have a really different flavor. Um, on top, we have finger limes. So every time the intention is you have a spoonful, you have little bursts of citrus, uh, umami, and uh, I also use some local vongole. So the entire dish is seafood-driven. That's where I'm from. I'm from an island. We're on an island. It makes sense. And it's tangy, tart, fresh, acidic, umami, and that's really the best way to describe it. Besides the exquisite dishes served, the CARES event showed attendees the power chefs can wield to help tackle problems. By supporting local traditions and convincing farmers and fishermen to adopt sustainable methods, restaurants can deliver first-rate fare and support the local economy as well as the surrounding nature. For Monocle, on the island of Selina, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Ivan Carvalho there. You're listening to The Menu. Up next, it's time for the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Lillis. UK-based tea brand PG Tips have created a new tea bag which will supposedly create the perfect brew in just 60 seconds. According to the company, the tea itself is the perfect particle size, meaning it can brew quickly and consistently. The development of the product took nearly two years and cost around 58 million euros. This week, the French supermarket chain Carrefour has put labels on 26 of its products to warn shoppers of shrinkflation. The phenomenon occurs when manufacturers reduce packaging sizes rather than increase their prices and has affected goods such as chocolate and iced tea. The move is intended to put pressure on top consumer goods suppliers such as Nestle and Unilever. And finally, alcohol flowed freely through a Portuguese town this week after two vats of red wine from a local distillery burst and flooded the area. Images online showed around 2.2 million litres of wine gushing down the streets of Levera in the country's central region. According to the CEO of the distillery, the spill did not leave behind a strong smell because it was good quality wine. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Chiara. Thanks, Monica. You are with Monocle Radio. Now, we head over to Istanbul, where, perhaps surprisingly, until recently, falafel was not a common sight on tables and menus in the city. However, a new wave of immigrant restaurateurs from across the Middle East are looking to change that. Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda Smith, made her way to Falafel Vegan House in the city's Kadikoy district to find out more. three years, the best falafel in Istanbul has been served from a hole in the wall by Ahmet Aburub, a Palestinian logistics manager who came to the city in 2017. He opened his shop Falful in 2020 and its reputation has soared, even though falafel is still relatively unknown in Istanbul. Yeah, well, our, our falafel is a bit different from the Syrian falafel and from the Lebanese falafel. Uh, we use more greens in the falafel. It's not just uh, chickpeas. Yeah, that's the main thing. We don't use much uh, garlic. Is there anything from um, Palestine that you can't find here? Anything that you really miss? 
oh, I bring them, I bring whatever I need here. But the thing that I really do miss is the olive oil. That's one thing. Other than that, especially from my city in Palestine, which is Jinin, um, I mean, in our house you can find uh, 2,000 to two th uh, two, 3,000-year-old uh, trees. Five years ago, it was hard to find falafel in Turkey. Apart from in one province, Hatay on the Syrian border, it's just not a part of the cuisine. Well, mainly my customers are uh, expats because they are more familiar with falafel than Turkish people. Which is crazy. Which is crazy, yeah. I didn't even eat falafel here for at least two years, maybe. Yeah, and I wasn't looking for them. But the chickpea delicacy is finally making its way onto the menu here. Falafel is one of a clutch of places now serving falafel in Istanbul. I spoke with Ahmet about his unlikely journey as an Istanbul falafel pioneer and how the secrets of this Levantine classic are passed down. Where did you learn to make falafel? Oh, should I tell you the truth? Yeah. In the shop. You never made it before? I've never made it before. And uh, to be honest with you, of course I, I didn't know the recipe. I got a recipe from uh, someone in Jerusalem, he's got one of the oldest uh, falafel shops in Jerusalem. It's over a hundred year old, and of course I uh, I had to make some very little tweaks. And, uh, yeah, that's it. But the thing is, you know, as a Palestinian, it's not, it doesn't mean that I I know how to make the best falafel. No, it it makes me know how falafel should taste like. Just last question. Yeah. Talk me through how you make perfect falafel from start to finish. Oh no, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't. Is it trade secret? Of course. Uh, no, I don't want to be giving you something wrong. I don't want to lie to you. If you want falafel, you just uh, knock on the door. Hannah Lucinda-Smith there with that report. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. The programme was produced by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Goka Dunya by Altingun. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>